Good morning. Many thanks to Marion and the music team, led us so well this morning, and thanks for the folks twiddling knobs upstairs, unseen but heroes nonetheless. You might like to, if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians and chapter 1. In the notices, Marion reminded us of the Holiday Bible Club just uh, a few days away. Denise Beer and the team put a lot of work into it so far, much more to be done, but do pray for all involved, the children, the families, and those who are helping. For me, it's a first this morning, first time ever I've ever preached in a beer garden. <laughs> Okay, Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Chris Young uh, started this series uh, on the first Sunday in May. Seems a long time ago. Uh, and we have enjoyed over the weeks, I'm sure, uh, a variety of speakers who have led us through the few chapters that there are in Philippians. I trust that not only have we enjoyed these sermons, but that we have also been challenged in some way. Coming together for worship each Sunday is great, and it's right and biblical for us so to do. However, uh, we can know the Lord's blessing in so many ways if we're attentive to his word and obedient to its challenges. Have we been these past few weeks? Chris reminded us that uh, when a person receives Christ uh, as their Savior, having repented of their sin, they receive a new heart and become joined to a new family. Our series was Think Right, Live Right, and that's a good start being in a new family, a new family with love and care and concern for each other. Not only this, but a family where we can earnestly pray for each other, share our joys, our delights, our fears, our frustrations, and be assured that God knows all about us and is delighted that through his Son we have come home. Ian Phillips reminded us of that great declaration from the Apostle Paul, for to me to live is Christ. Coming into a relationship with Jesus gives us a new and a fresh start. No matter how messed up we may have been in the past, no matter what things may lurk in the background of our history, no matter how dark and dismal things may have been there in the past, with Christ we are set free, free from those things that bind 
and dominate our lives. We have a new purpose that will enable us to develop a new attitude. Ian Larkham reminded us of our royal calling. The fact that we belong to the royal courts of heaven and have the privilege of blessing and of honoring and of valuing one another. And our series continued with a new life and with a visit from India of our Wycliffe translator friend, Mark Penny. We were challenged about our new responsibilities. Philippians is just a short letter from Paul written while he was in prison, but it packs a punch and challenges us in so many avenues of our lives. The series concluded with Chris and the two Ians bringing to us new friendships, new confidence, new ambitions. Uh, with the final message being delivered last week where Ian Phillips spoke of new resources and generosity. I know like many of us that Ian does not enjoy talking about money. It's a difficult subject especially when it involves highlighting the situation that we face at CBC as we look at our current finances. I call into the office on occasion to sign some finance documents and sometimes to seek advice from Jill, but I'm so pleased that I don't sit in her seat. There were three boys in the playground bragging about their dads. One said, my dad scribbles a few words, calls it a song, and they pay him 50 pounds. Oh, yes, yeah, said the second boy. My dad scribbles a few words, calls it a poem, and they pay him 100 pounds. That's nothing, said the third boy. My dad scribbles a few words, calls it a sermon, and it takes six people to collect all the money. <laughs> Ian encouraged us to be generous with our stuff and reminded us that we have the opportunity to be rich toward God, especially when we give generously to someone he loves. I think maybe the biggest thing that holds people back from being generous is that generosity entails taking a risk. Sometimes it means risking talking to a stranger to see if they're okay. Sometimes it means risking your financial stability. Sometimes it means risking your personal safety. And so I think that that holds people back. When I was 27 years old, I was living on the East Coast and I just was on top of the world and I couldn't imagine life getting any better. And then out of the blue, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. In the process of my treatments, I got really, really sick, and my whole life fell apart. While I'm there in the hospital, I resigned my job, I Craigslisted my apartment, I sold all my stuff, and I bought a one-way ticket to the West Coast because I wanted to get as far away as I could get. I still remember getting off the plane, and I'm standing there with just a suitcase, and I'm this bald, scarred, broken mess of a girl. I felt like I was invisible. I felt like the pain and suffering that I was enduring didn't matter, that nobody noticed and nobody saw me. 
it was in that state where I was just kind of wandering through my life that I was riding a train one afternoon and I saw this Somali woman get on the train with her two little girls who were ages three and four, but there wasn't a seat for the three-year-old. And so I held my arms out like this and she climbed into my lap and she just nestled in and fell asleep. And I looked at the mom and I asked her more about her life and she started telling me their story. In very broken English, she explained that she and her husband had five little girls who were all under the age of nine. They'd come to the States, but her husband had been abusive and then had left the family right after they arrived. She didn't have a job. She barely spoke English. She didn't have any money. She didn't know a soul and she's in this foreign city. I thought, God, I am the least qualified person to put in this situation. I decided that I would get their address and at least they would know that they weren't alone, that there was one person who saw these people who were seemingly invisible. And that's what made me drive to their apartment. I saw they had absolutely nothing. It looked like an apartment that nobody lived in. A couple days later, I went and I took them a couple bags of groceries. And then a couple days after that, I went back and I took them some clothes. And then my church got involved and we donated little girls' clothes. We were able to fill their closets. They gave these little girls rocking chairs and dollhouses and toys to play with. And we did this like extreme home makeover. A lot of people ask the question, what do you get for the girl who has everything? And the question I started asking about these girls was, what do you get for the girl who has nothing? If I could be generous and give something of me to empower them, what would be the best thing that I could give them? And my answer to that was a college education. I don't have the money that it takes to send five little girls to four years of college each, but I thought, you know what, I could sell a book. The book came out and all of the proceeds of the book are going into a trust fund for these little girls so that they have a shot at going to college. And it wasn't just my story and it wasn't just their story, but it was our story. And that by reaching outside of myself and helping this family while I was still really hurting actually ended up being my lifeline. And so for me personally, the journey that I've been on is learning how to reverse the question. Instead of asking, what happens to me as I give this money away? The question becomes, what will happen to these girls if I don't? It's difficult sometimes to sum up a series like this when there have been a multitude of thoughts and ideas and challenges Perhaps we appreciate some parts more than others. Maybe there was that one sermon, that one Sunday, when you felt moved by the Spirit of God in some way that was new to you. I'll leave you to your own particular thoughts and actions as we wrap up these four chapters in Philippians. I want to briefly reflect on three words that came to me a while ago while I was thinking and praying about this morning's message. What Paul has done for us in writing this prison epistle is to highlight so much about the Lord Jesus Christ, about the part that he plays in our lives, about where we stand in relationship with him and in relationship with each other. How does the word of God equip us to think right and to live right? Firstly, Paul reminds these believers at Philippi and reminds us about a new message, chapter 1. 
verses 12 and 14, uh, 12 through 14, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Just a couple of phrases. Paul says, what has happened? Paul's referring to his journey uh, to Rome and his imprisonment there. And then he says, to advance. And this refers to that forward movement of something. Uh, Usually armies. It's a military term. But in spite of the obstacles, the dangers, and the distractions, Paul's imprisonment is proved to be no hindrance to spreading the message of salvation. Actually, it created new opportunities. Paul knew that he would find something good even in prison. Surely God must have sent him there for a purpose. He would find that purpose and rejoice in it. And indeed he did. He found that purpose at the other end of the chain. The Praetorian Guards. Some 9,000 of these highly trained men created by Caesar Augustus some 70 years earlier. These men were paid high salaries and were an elite group. One of the most important groups in ancient Rome. And they needed to be reached for the gospel. So God had instigated this new message after Jesus had been crucified. After he'd been removed from the cross as a corpse and not as a con man. After he'd been encased in the tomb for three days and three nights. And after he had risen from the dead, was very much alive and made his presence known to the disciples. Put yourself, if you can imagine this, in God's shoes. What earth-shattering, mind-blowing events had taken place in and around Jerusalem. His only son, the joy of his heart, the one in whom there was no sin, went through the agony of rejection, the cruelty of the cross, the coldness of the tomb, and is now alive, risen from the dead, and soon coming home. That story needs telling. Those events need to be proclaimed to the whole world. And who has he at hand to share that good news, to proclaim this new message of salvation in and through the finished work of Christ? a fairly motley band of locals, and later on a guy who at the time was anything but on his side by the name of Saul of Tarsus. But in our studies in Philippians, we find that that same man is now on fire for Christ, Paul the Apostle. Now what's Paul going to do? Rent a hall? See if the Colosseum is free? Conduct some Billy Graham-type crusade? Who in their right mind would want to listen to a Jew from Tarsus talk about another Jewish man named Jesus who did some amazing things over a short period of time, claimed to be linked to God, and who ended up being put to death? Who would want to hear that? 
But God desired that this new message should reach those thousands in the Praetorian Guard. And so he took his best man. He had him unjustly arrested and sent to Rome, where he was put in prison and chained to one of those guys 24-7. Mathematicians amongst us stop and do the sums. A shift chains perhaps every six hours. Four new guards a day, 28 times a week, over a two-year period, that's over 2,900 opportunities to share the gospel. That's why Paul can declare the news about Christ has become well-known throughout the Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Uh, We've seen some wildfires lately due to the excessive heat wave just happening here, there, and everywhere. Some very serious. And here in Rome and elsewhere, God's wildfire was spreading fast. His new message, the message that we still proclaim, was catching hold of people's lives, setting a fire in their hearts that would change whole communities. To spell out this new message, I would maintain that it doesn't take powerful preachers on the platforms of our churches. It doesn't take charismatic, persuasive orators with a support worldwide, with TV stations and radio stations that beam out their teaching and preaching. It doesn't take that, but it takes ordinary people on the very ordinary pathway of life. Ordinary believers who've experienced the powerful, redeeming work of Christ in their lives. Sometimes those pathways are difficult. Sometimes they're tough. Sometimes they're distressing. Sometimes those chains become unbearable and heavy and they weigh us down, but God has a message to proclaim and he uses the likes of us to deliver that message by the way we think and by the, by the way we live. Philippians also challenges us with a new mandate. If we look at chapter 1, verse 27, and chapter 2, verse 5, just a snippet from there, Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And later on in that verse, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. 2, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's a real privilege to be in a church that has a strong emphasis on mission. It's a privilege for me to be part of the mission team and to discuss with my fellow team members uh, the Lord's work, both here at home and in a number of places in the world. It's exciting. It's invigorating. It's challenging. This is not a mission Sunday. That's coming in November. Make a note of that. Uh, So I won't digress. However, there is a tendency for us in the West as Christians to pray for an end of persecution in so many parts of the world because we believe that to be the desire of those brothers and sisters suffering for their faith. Sure, persecution and suffering are not easy. We know very little of it. 
But research shows that what our fellow believers in such circumstances would have us pray is that they somehow would bring honor and glory to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, despite their circumstances. And who knows? Who knows? They may pray for us that amidst all the sinful distractions of wealth and ease and perversion and greed, that we would repent of our worldliness and live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. That, friends, is our mandate. Paul in verse 27 is not merely making a suggestion to the folks at Philippi, but he commands them to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. What he's saying to them is that their lives must bring honor to the one who has redeemed them. And because of what Christ has done for them in bringing them salvation, they must display an uncompromising undying commitment to live as those who have been saved by the only one able to save and the only one who is worthy of praise. Now, if you have an NIV Bible, this verse starts with, whatever happens. However, in the Greek, the word only is used. What is Paul saying to those early believers at Philippi? It's this. Whether I get out of prison and see you, or if I never see you again, I want you to know just this one thing. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Think of all the truths of Scripture that Paul may have wished to convey on this early church, and yet he homes in on this one issue. Conduct that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. And why should he say this? Well, if our salvation is real, then there will be a change in the way that we live. Unbelievers will draw conclusions about Jesus Christ by the way that we live. And in a society that is increasingly pagan, we can make a huge impact again by the way that we live. Chapter 2, verse 5. Here's another part of the mandate that involves our attitude. People talk a lot uh, about attitude these days, whether it's about our teenagers, school life, our politicians, our police, or about life in general. There's always someone who has an attitude that perhaps we find difficult to agree with. They rub us up the wrong way. But here in chapter 2, Paul speaks of a particular attitude that is essential for us to comprehend and essential for us to take on board. We should be imitators of Christ's attitude. In other words, when we come to Christ, there is a given mandate for change. A change in our viewpoint. A change in our behavior. A change in our relationships. A change in our habits. A change in our speech. And we could go on. And what is it that we are to imitate? Paul points out that Jesus took on servanthood and humility. He emptied himself of all his former glory. He became a servant, humbled himself, and became truly human. He descends from the heights of heaven 
The majesty he shares with his father to take on human flesh and eventually to suffer the insult and the agony of the cross. From the highest of heights to the very lowest of depths. Servanthood and humility. They're not easy. But Paul encourages us in verse 12 to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Finally, having looked at a new message and a new mandate, we consider a new motivation. Chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of power that he has even to subject all things to himself. And chapter 4, verse 5, let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. What has believers should be driving us in our daily walk and witness. What marks us out as different from those who do not believe? It's this. We belong to a citizen, a citizenship that is not bound by earth's limitations. Our citizenship is heavenly. Does that sound a, a, a bit dreamy? Is that a reality? Paul explains that our eyes, our hearts, our very beings have now got a different perspective. We do not any longer belong to the other place that is the world. Once we were citizens of that place, with all the problems of godlessness, all the ramifications of not having a destiny, and all the sense of being captured by our sinful nature... We're subject now to different laws. We're subject now to a perfect administration. And we now look heavenward for our Savior, Jesus, who will return. That great standing article of our faith motivates us into service for him. He who was seen leaving the earth and is now in heaven will come again and take us to be with himself. We will no doubt have different views regarding this, but the fact that we cling to is that Jesus is coming for his church, and this motivates us in our trials and temptations and keeps us looking heavenward. In the meantime, says the Apostle Paul, let's be encouraged because the Lord is near. Or some verses are rendered in other versions, uh, the Lord is at hand. Paul encourages the Philippians in verse 6 of that chapter 4 to be anxious for nothing. And although that's sometimes easier said than done, he reminds them of the fact of the Lord's nearness. Friends, nothing has changed regarding this truth. He's with us right at this moment and just wants patiently for us to turn our hearts to him, waiting for us to share our daily experiences, 
to talk to him in prayer, to experience his peace, to experience his wisdom, to experience his power. We waste so much time trying to figure things out for ourselves. When all the time, instead of resolving our problems alone, he is so willing to give us what we need for daily living. In order that we can walk confidently through the day with his peace and with his joy. There's an old chorus that says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And in so doing, friends at CBC this morning, with his help and by supporting and encouraging each other, we will be better equipped to think right and live right.